Let's pray together. Father in heaven, if there were an uncool theology in the church today, we have happened upon it this morning. As if you cared about what was cool and what wasn't at any given point. Lord, what the Bible says about the end times is not well known in the church today. And oh, I pray that you would grant us not embarrassment before the biblical text, which seems to be where a lot of folks are, but rather encouragement, curiosity, hopefulness, boldness, and a great desire to see eschatology, not as a distraction from the Great Commission, but the very destination of the Great Commission. I pray that you would come, not only that you would come in a capital C way, that you would come and return for your church, but that you would come now in this moment and provide the gift of illumination. That is what you designed to do in moments like this. Use the preaching of your word to awaken slumbering souls and use it to bring, again, help and hope to those who know you. Father, I pray that there would also be a a converting effect in this word that as the gospel is proclaimed, the fulfillment of the gospel is proclaimed, that even those who don't know you today might find themselves um, found by Jesus through this word. Come now and accompany the proclamation of your word with the illumination of your Holy Spirit, and we will thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a a passage tucked away in one of the epistles of the Apostle Paul that provides one of the the simplest summaries of the Christian life that I'm aware of in the Bible. Uh, at, At one point in his correspondence with a church, Paul tells a particular group of Christ followers that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there's a lot I like about those verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, not the least of which, as I mentioned, is their economy. It's their compactness. Paul's getting a lot done in about a verse and a half there. But it's not only the economy with which Paul speaks, but it's the destination with which Paul speaks. This is what I call the destination of the Great Commission. We, we considered the Great Commission last week on, on Vision Sunday, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <clears throat> Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you, what? Even to the end of the age. And in my estimation, anyway, those are the most six most neglected words in the Great Commission. To the end of the age. Eschatology, as you may be aware, is what the Bible says about the future. That's a, a It's a big word that just simply means what the Bible says about the future. Study of the end time. 
And Jesus' point in Matthew 28 is the same as Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 1, namely that our mission, the Great Commission, is actually going somewhere. We are to make disciples to the end of the age. And at the end of that age will occur a new age, the age of the kingdom that Jesus has been teaching about throughout the Gospel of Luke. Or as Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians 1, you turn from God to idols to serve the living and the true God to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Did you know, you may know this because I think I've mentioned this before, but the return of Christ is referenced on average in the New Testament once every 25 verses. It stands to reason because over the course of our study of Luke's gospel, these past two plus years, as I've mentioned, as we've encountered passage after passage, this is the 10th time we've studied this doctrine. We've had an entire sermon on the return of Christ. Luke's gospel is brimming. It's brimful with this teaching. We're just minding our own business. We're making a careful study of Luke's gospel, and Luke's gospel happens to be crammed with truth about the end time. You might be surprised to learn that Scripture's teaching of the soon return of Christ, um, far from being some sort of detached kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of doctrine, is, if you forgive a pretty bad pun, one of the most down-to-earth truths that you could ever come to understand. Um, we would be wise to ponder together the relevance that a sincere and fervent belief in the imminent return of Jesus, what a, a belief along those lines does for you in every practical area of your life. And the New Testament authors understood this. I mean, consider the effortlessness with which they move back and forth between the return of Jesus on the one hand and then nitty-gritty practical daily realities on the other. They do it routinely. So, so this doesn't just preach, this, this counsels. This is why it's, it's astounding to me to discover that uh, when we consider the go-to doctrinal training resource for our counselors in this church, um, we see every major doctrine unpacked in this one particular book for the purposes of counsel except for the return of Jesus. So there's a particular book called A Theology of Biblical Counseling. We want all of our counselors and training to be reading it. It's a great resource. It covers God and Christ and the spirit and humanity and sin and suffering and salvation in the church, all of these, but not a whiff about the return of Jesus. As if it didn't matter for the purposes of counseling, as if it didn't exist at all. And you say, well, you should get another resource to train your counselors. I would say it's the best one I can find. I don't know of a better resource, except the Bible. For instance, James 5, 8 and 9, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. How many of you dealt with those this week? Patience, complaining, need to be kind. James links it with the return of Christ. Or in 1 Peter 4, 7, we read that the end of all things is at hand. He said that 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So their eschatology is galvanizing and driving self-control. How many of us need that? Sober-mindedness. You ever just need to give your your prayer life, a spiritual B12 shot, 
A return of Jesus is meant to encourage that. Or when we turn to Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, we hear the familiar words, let us therefore consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. But, but then the author connects that with the return of Christ, his glorious appearing when he says, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the word day is a capital D, day. He's a, he's a Jewish writer. Of course he's talking about the day of the Lord. And if there were time, we'd, we'd look in the New Testament how the return of Christ connects to gentleness and holiness and evangelism, as Brian said for us. And all of these matter in view of the return of Christ. But I hope we've begun to make the point anyway that what the Bible says about the end times is most certainly news that you can use. And with that in mind, I'd invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles in the seat in front of you, today's passage is found beginning on page 880 in the red Bibles. Page 880, Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. I'd like, I'd like to read the entire portion of Scripture. We don't often do it this way, but sometimes it's good to get the forest for the trees. Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, that's Jesus, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, uh, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your heads will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Let then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant. And for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what's coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the fig trees and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Take a breath. That is a truckload of scripture that we just heard. So let's boil it down. Let's keep it simple. Big idea this morning. Jesus promises us, surely I am coming soon. Those are the final words of our Lord spoken in the Bible. They're drawn from Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. They are a prophecy, they're a promise. From Jesus to his church, Jesus promises us, surely I am coming soon. Now, without setting dates and without getting weird, you say, too late. Hmm. Just how close are we to the return of Christ? I think that's an honest question that we can pose before this passage this morning. Without setting dates, without getting weird, How close are we to the return of Jesus? Well, the answer to that question is that it's found in seven signs. Seven signs drawn out of the Olivet Discourse here. The Olivet Discourse is the name given to the teaching of Jesus that we've just heard. There are parallel passages here in in Matthew 24 and 25 and also in Mark 13. But these are seven truths, seven future events from the standpoint of Jesus in the first century that must precede his glorious appearing at the end of the age and the commencement of his kingdom. So let's get started. The first sign is the appearance of false Christs. The appearance of false Christs. By the way, I'm struck. Last week's sermon had seven points, three applications. This week's sermon, seven points, three applications. That was not intentional. Jesus says in verse 8, See to it that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. A similar passage in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, See to it that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, friends, that this prophecy has been fulfilled time and again is not difficult to establish throughout the course of human history. In fact, just to save time, let's simply limit ourselves to the last 50 years. How about that? People who have claimed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh with a straight face, and they had all kinds of people following them. 
persons like the Reverend Sung Young Moon and the Unification Church, Charles Manson, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Marshall Applewhite, who led the Heaven's Gate cult. The simple fact of the matter is that since the time of the New Testament, human history has not lacked for individuals who have themselves claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the second coming of Jesus in the flesh. Jesus warned that many would come in his name and lead many astray, and that's exactly what's happened. And for all intents and purposes, when we consider if any of the signs that Jesus said would precede his coming, if they've taken place, I think we can safely say that this one has been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled. Secondly, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus speaks of wars and tumults. Wars and tumults, or as he says in a well-known passage in Matthew 24, 6, wars and rumors of wars. Here's how he puts it in Luke 21, 9 and 10. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I'm I'm not sure either that we need to spend a whole lot of energy thinking through the fulfillment of this one either. This prediction of our Lord has seen multiple fulfillments over the course of human history. In fact, if we were to If we were just to add up some of the most significant wars in human history, here's what we'd come to. Add up the the Mongol conquests of the Middle Ages to the the Napoleonic Wars, the Taiping Rebellion, the Russian Civil War, and then World Wars I and II. Even by conservative estimations, we're talking about total casualties ranging in the realm of 200 million people. That's a number that simply boggles the mind, and we can arrive at it simply by counting the death toll in a half a dozen wars. And what's a tumult, you might ask? I had to look that word up. I didn't know what a tumult was until earlier this week. Tumult is a violent uproar. It's a riot. It's an uprising of civil unrest. And we don't even look outside our own nation in the last half decade to see this one. Ferguson. Baltimore, Salt Lake City, Milwaukee, Charlotte, as well as a number of high-profile protests of civil unrest that happened in the wake of the election of our 45th president of the United States. Let's remember what Jesus says about these things in verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. In other words, these events don't signal the immediate return of Jesus, but rather these are, as he says in Matthew 24, 8, but the beginning of the birth pangs. Next, in verse 11, Jesus references earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. That's the third sign. Earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. We'll take each in turn. As it relates to earthquakes, of the hundreds of thousands we could possibly mention in world history, I'll just reference two. The first is considered one of the greatest earthquakes to have ever occurred, and you may remember it because it happened less than just a few years ago on April 25th, 2015. A 7.8 earthquake shook the nation of Nepal between Kathmandu and Pokhara. One resource I read described it as a force equaling that of 20 thermonuclear weapons. 5,000 people perished, and another 10,000 were injured in Nepal just three years ago. And the earthquake that many people regard as the single greatest in world history occurred on May 22nd, 1960 in Vivaldia, Chile. It was a quake that measured 9.5 on the Richter scale. 
9.5. It produced a tsunami with unprecedented power that speeded across the Pacific Ocean at 200 miles an hour, and it killed 61 people in Hawaii, 138 in Japan, and 32 in the Philippines. And it happened in South America. We've seen earthquakes. And Jesus also speaks of famines, widespread scarcity of food that frankly should never happen on a planet with resources such as ours. Hunger shouldn't shouldn't even be something that occurs to us given the rich natural resources the Lord has left in this earth as he's created it. And yet, there are a number of famines of note. I'd just like to approach it this way. If we were to add up the 10 greatest famines in world history, compiling the casualties, we'd be pushing 120 million deaths, just the 10 greatest famines. And then there's what Jesus calls pestilences. Pestilence, that's an outbreak. It's an epidemic, a health crisis of entire people groups or nations or in some cases even continents. And over the centuries, our world has known pestilences. You just walk through the list like polio, typhus fever, AIDS, malaria, cholera, smallpox, yellow fever, tuberculosis, the Black Death. Even historically, the influenza virus has killed millions. So when Jesus says in verse 11, there will be earthquakes, famines, and pestilences that visit this earth prior to his second coming, it seems to me we can certainly see more of this in the days to come, but we can also conclude without a doubt that this prophecy has been fulfilled many times over. Let's turn our attention to what takes up the majority of his instruction here in chapter 21, and that would be the the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. That's number four. The destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Now, this is where the entire Olivet Discourse begins. This is what starts the whole discussion. Look with me at verses five to seven again. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? I just hold up the reading right there. In verse 5, it's even more explicit in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, but the disciples point out the, the beauty of Solomon's temple, actually it's, it's uh, the second temple rather. Solomon's temple is, is the first temple which was destroyed by the Babylonians. We call this one the second temple. They point out what they call the noble stones in verse 5. Uh, they were indeed that. Uh, King Herod arranged for these stones to be put into place as he made significant renovations to the second temple. He built with massive white marble stones. You say, well how, how big were these stones? Well they were on the order of 67 feet long 12 feet high, 18 feet wide. They're absolutely mammoth. So when he says in verse 6 that there's coming a day when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, you can imagine it drew not only a gasp from his disciples, but probably not a few snickers and laughs. So he presses into them, starting in verse 12, that this is going to happen, but not before they are persecuted. So verse 12 Before all this, they will lay their hands on you. This is for the disciples in particular. They will persecute you. We see this played out in the book of Acts. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. 
For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, and none of your adversaries will be able to contradict it. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death, and they did, beginning with Stephen and James and throughout the book of Acts. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your heads will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. And then Jesus says this, and this is what would have mattered most to them in this moment, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter it. Okay, the destruction of Jerusalem and furthermore the the annihilation of the entire city of uh, Jerusalem The destruction of the temple is noted here in these verses. No longer than one generation after Jesus spoke these words, it took place in A.D. 70. In the year A.D. 70, a massive military response to Jewish revolts of the previous years. It was led by Emperor Titus Vespasian. He and his Roman forces came to the temple, destroyed the temple, and devastated the city of Jerusalem. Some 50,000 Roman troops entered the temple in the city, and they did it on the exact anniversary of the day of the destruction of the first temple in 586 B.C. Historians tell us that the slaughter of 500 Jewish leaders uh, ensued, and 500 of them were immediately crucified. More than a million Jews lost their lives in the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And all that remains of the second temple complex is that iconic western wall. Sometimes we refer to it as the Wailing Wall today. You see it on TV all the time. Which leads us to wonder, didn't Jesus prophesy in verse 6 that not one stone upon another would be left of the second temple? What about the western wall? Well, the western wall is not a part of the original temple complex. It was added by Herod later in the first century. Jesus got this prophecy exactly right, down to the stones. There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, and that's precisely what happened. You say, okay, the first four signs have been fulfilled, but that's all pretty much ancient history. And in some case, these kinds of things happened before Jesus spoke these words, and they've been happening over the last 2,000 years. How about a recent fulfillment of biblical prophecy? You got anything like that here? And if you consider with me what Jesus says in the back half of verse 24, my answer is very possibly. The next sign before the return of Christ, number five, is the Gentile occupation of Jerusalem ended. The Gentile occupation of Jerusalem ended. Listen to what Jesus says in the back half of verse 24. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, it points to the fact that although God clearly gave the land to the people of Israel, the plain fact of the matter is that for the majority of that time, since their ownership of it, they haven't been tenants in it, particularly since A.D. 70, since the fall to the Romans. It was the Roman Empire, and then the Ottoman Turks, and then the Crusaders, and for a short time, even the British Empire had a mandate to to care for the land. Since the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, it's been just as Jesus said it would be. These are the times of the Gentiles for the last 2,000 years. What does he go on to say in verse 24? He says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that the nations 
won't rule over Jerusalem and the land of Israel forever. There's coming a day when the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and Israel will once again inhabit and be the sovereign occupants in their own land. Now, I've quoted these guys before, but it's been almost a year, so you'll have to permit me to do it again. Uh, As far back as 1668, now that is smack in the middle of the 800-year Ottoman Turk occupation of Israel. My pastoral hero, John Owen, wrote these words in 1668. It is granted that there shall be a time and a season in this world wherein the generality of the nation of the Jews all the world over shall receive deliverance from their captivity and restoration unto their own land with a blessed, flourishing, happy condition therein. And listen to this. He hedges his bets a little bit. He says, it's only the thing itself I assert. Nor have I any cause as to the end aimed at to inquire into the time or the manner of its accomplishment. The event can be the only sure and infallible expositor of these things. Christians do generally assert it, look for it, and pray for it, and have done so in all ages from the days of the apostles. Owen wrote those words 280 years before the founding of the modern state of Israel in 1948. Now, even more impressive are the words of Charles Spurgeon in 1864. This is a full 80 years before the founding of the Jewish nation. Spurgeon, with his finger not on a crystal ball, but in his holy Bible, said this, Israel is now blotted out from the map of the nations. Her sons are scattered far and wide. Her daughters mourn beside all the rivers of the earth. Her sacred song is hushed. No king reigns in Jerusalem. She brings forth no governors among her tribes, but she is to be restored as from the dead. When her own sons have given up all hope on her, God is to appear for her. She is to be reorganized. Her scattered bones are are to be brought together. Now listen to the specificity here. There will be a national government again. There will be again the form of a political body. A state shall be incorporated and a king shall reign Israel has become alienated from her own land. Her sons, though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at hopeless distance from the consecrated shores of Israel. But it shall not be so forever. For her son shall again rejoice in her. Now listen to this closing reflection from Spurgeon. I do not think that we attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. We do not think enough about it. But certainly, if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. I imagine that you cannot read the Bible without seeing clearly that there is to be an actual restoration of the children of Israel. For when the Jews are restored, the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in. And as soon as they return, then Jesus will come upon Mount Zion with his ancients gloriously. And the halcyon days of the millennium shall dawn. We shall know then every man to be a brother and a friend. And Christ shall rule with unhindered universal sway. All right. I'm inclined to believe that one of the strongest cases we can possibly make for the truthfulness and the authority of Scripture has to be the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Does the establishment of the Jewish state in 1948 over 70 years ago signal a fulfillment of this prophecy? Well, not entirely. They don't own the Temple Mount, and the third temple is not there yet, but it's coming. The Temple Institute is ready. Guy and I were there touring it just this time last year. It's coming. One day, the 
times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. The Gentile occupation of Jerusalem ended. Verse 24 is nearly fulfilled. Now, just like last week, we can cycle through these last two points awfully quickly because they, they haven't happened yet. Six, the appearance of the man of lawlessness and the abomination of desolation. I know that's a mouthful. I'll say it again. The appearance of the man of lawlessness and the abomination of desolation. Also, number seven, the cosmic signs in the heavens. Cosmic signs in the heavens. Now, we're not going to deal with either one of the, the man of lawlessness or the abomination of desolation because Luke doesn't deal with them. I only bring it up here because Matthew does. And Matthew would have cared because his readership was mostly Jewish and they would have been interested in the fulfillment of the prophecies of the book of Daniel. So if you were to turn to Matthew 24, 15, if you were to press into the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and some other places in Holy Scripture, you would see this prophecy as well. Jesus believed it. As it relates to cosmic signs in the heavens, um, you know, blood moons notwithstanding, uh, I, I don't think we've seen this one yet. Uh, it's not just going to be one or two fringe Christian authors who have seen the cosmic signs in the heavens. You will see and you will know, everyone will know when the stars and the moon and the sun show these signs. You won't be able to ignore them. One of the other reasons I think we haven't seen the cosmic signs in the heavens in verses 11 and 25 and 26 is because the final sign, the, the, the final return of Jesus happens right on the heels of those cosmic signs. So we read in verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now that's the glorious appearing that we read of in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 14. It's the exact passage that Jesus quotes before his accusers in Matthew 26, and finally, we see it played out in Revelation 19. You say, what about the rapture? I haven't heard anything about the rapture. What about its timing relative to the the tribulation here? My answer is I believe the rapture because the Bible teaches the rapture, but for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't take up this matter here, doesn't give a whiff of it here. The timing of the rapture with reference to the great tribulation, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, it's not addressed by Jesus. So I'm going to pull a Maury Buford here. You know who Maury Buford is? He was the punter from the 85 Chicago Bears. So I'm going to punt on that question. I have a conviction slowly growing about the timing of the rapture with reference to the tribulation, but I'll save that for another day. Let's just satisfy ourselves with the incredible visual image of the return of our Lord, the glorious appearing of Jesus, wherever you fall on the topic of the rapture. And let's close with a few personal and practical applications. As I do, I, I hope anyway that these, these are encouraging to you, that these prophecies put steel in your backbone as you think about the reliability of Holy Scripture. It did for a philosopher like Blaise Pascal. 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal once said this. You just can't get away with talking this way in America, but this is what Pascal said. I see many opposing religions, and yet all of them false, excepting one. Each of them asserts its right to be received on its own authority and fulminates threats against the unbelieving. I do not, however, believe them to be more true for these pretensions. All may make such, all may claim the gift of prophetical inspiration, but under the Christian religion, I find actual prophecy, and I find it in no other. I love that. Blaise Pascal, under the Christian religion, I find actual prophecy, and in it I find no other. And that being the case, just receive these three applications here in short order. Number one, grow in your anticipation of the return of Christ. Grow 
in your anticipation of the return of Christ. Jesus says in verse 26 that in the last days, particularly when those cosmic signs in the heavens begin, there will be people fainting with fear and foreboding on what is coming on the world. I can imagine so. If you don't know Jesus, this would be the case for you. But if you know Christ, this won't be you. Look at what he says in verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, the cosmic signs in the heavens and so on, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. You know, we just went through the Christmas season, and I'm, I started thinking about, oh, you better not shout, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why, Jesus Christ is coming to town, right? That's going to be the situation. If you keep your head when all about you, everybody is losing theirs, you're going to be a good witness for Jesus in this day. What should our posture be in view of the end of this age? Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, don't freak out, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Secondly, develop your convictions about the return of Christ. So important for Christians today. Develop your convictions about the return of Christ. Look at what Jesus says in 29 to 33. He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Some folks stumble over what Jesus says in verse 32, namely that this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Granted, there's some debate over its meaning, but I am not of the opinion that Jesus could possibly have been talking about the generation of the first century disciples that are listening to him, as in this generation listening to him would not pass away before all these things happened. Rather, I think the nearest referent to this generation, as he puts in verse 32, is the generation alive at the time of the cosmic signs and the ending of the Gentile occupation of Israel. That's what he's talking about here. And he says in this, in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Commenting on this verse, Daryl Bach observes that creation is less permanent than the truth of Jesus' end-time teaching. Isn't that phenomenal? Creation is less permanent than the truth of Jesus' end-time teaching. Translation, don't be ashamed to grow in and pursue what the Bible teaches about the future. Jesus unashamedly gave one of his longest sermons to the topic. Study the prophets. Dive into the Olivet Discourse. Get to know Luke 21, Matthew 24 and 25. Get to know Mark 13. Become an expert in First and Second Thessalonians, those two epistles of the Apostle Paul we know less about than the others. And yes, give yourself to the book of Revelation. There's blessing in one that would give themselves to the book of Revelation. Go for it. You'll be blessed if you do. Develop your convictions about the return of Christ. Finally, be watchful for the return of Christ. Be watchful for the return of Christ. In verse 24, Jesus warns of being distracted by things like Wild parties, abuse of alcohol, general busyness of life. Remind you of any culture you know? Yeah. Following Jesus is precarious in our nation and in the West today, so stay awake. Be on watch. Be watchful for the return of Christ. 
Well, let's conclude. Jesus promises us, surely I am coming soon. So without setting dates, without getting weird, just how close are we to the return of Christ? I think the answer, if we were to sum up these seven signs, is closer than any of us might realize. Any sympathetic listener to these seven signs from the Olivet Discourse alone would conclude that the majority of these prophecies have been fulfilled. And while we wait the formal Gentile occupation of Jerusalem to come to an end, while we await the rise, reign, and the ruin of the Antichrist and the signs in the heavens and so on, any fair-minded reader of these words of our Lord must conclude that what Jesus says in Revelation 22.20 is more potent than ever, surely I am coming soon. So develop your convictions about the return of Christ. Grow in your anticipation of the return of Christ and be watchful for the return of Christ. Eschatology, end time study, it's not a distraction from our mission. It's the very destination of our mission. So let's look to the one, as Hebrews 9.28 says, who will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Test your heart today. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, all who have loved his appearing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.